If you'll turn in your Bible, please, to the book of Daniel this morning, Daniel and chapter 5, Daniel, Daniel's prophecy, one of the major prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the major prophets, we call them, not because they're more important, but because the four of them are longer and there's more material by them than the so-called minor prophets. Daniel chapter 5. And we'll stand in a few moments, but let me tell you a story first before we read the passage, okay? A couple of months ago or so, a man came He called uh, the office here, and he asked for an appointment with me. And uh, the man lives a few hours away in another city in another state. Honestly, I did not want to see him. I didn't want to see him because I knew him. And he was one of the most negative creatures I'd ever met in earth. It was just like taking a beating. I was home at lunch. I think his appointment was about 1 o'clock, and I'd gone home to pick me up a sandwich. And I told Norma, oh, I dread going in there and talking today. You ever had an appointment like that? And uh, he grew up here in the church. He grew up in a good family. He graduated from Florence Christian. He went to a uh, Christian college. And uh, somewhere along the line, he got his attitude warped, and he had become so negative, so critical, so caustic, so bitter. He had become very legalistic, and it had made him so critical. He looked down condescendingly at everybody who didn't have his standards, and uh, he would voice it. He would get on Facebook and talk about it and talk about people he didn't even know, and so I thought, what is he coming here for? Why, Lord, have I been predestinated to see this guy this afternoon? But I kept the appointment, and he came. I was dreading it. I think when he came in, I was, you know, I had my defenses up already. And then he came in, he had a big smile on his face. Hello, preacher, how you doing? I said, is this really him? just in speaking, and then he grabbed me and he hugged me with a bear hug and told me he loved me. And I thought, this is a dream. This could not be real. And I said, sit down. How you been? And so we started talking, and we reminisced about things and had a good time. I thought, well, I'm not out of here yet, though. And uh, it's got to be coming here shortly. (laughs) But uh, we kept on talking, and I just was enjoying it. And then he sat forward in his chair, and he said to me, I want you to forgive me. I said, you want me to forgive you? You haven't done anything to me that I know about. Now, I knew what he had said about others, but so far I had remained unscathed. And uh, I didn't know that he owed me any kind of apology or an appeal for forgiveness. He said, I want you to forgive me. And he told me the story. I graduated from college. I don't know where it happened, but I just became very negative in my mindset toward other people. After college, I went to 
Nebraska, and I ministered in a church, but it was not very fruitful. And then I moved to Florida, thinking it was the church in Nebraska. And after Florida, it didn't work out any better in Florida. And then after Florida, I moved to Georgia, and it wasn't any different in Georgia. And then I moved to another state, and it wasn't any different there. And he'd been hopping across the country, and it was always somebody else's fault. It was always the church in which he was attempting to minister. It was those people, you know, that kind of idea. Well, we talked for a long time, and then he said, everywhere I've ever got been, my attitude and my tongue have gotten me into trouble. Stop. Sila. Think about that. Everywhere I've ever been, my tongue and my attitude have gotten me into trouble. And I discovered it three or four years ago when a certain person, he called the name of a person who's a former employee here, was on, our, on, on the staff with me. He said, he and his wife took me, and we took 16 little discipleship books, and they discipled my wife and I. And I thought I was a great Christian because I'd graduated from a Christian school, a Christian college. I'd grown up in the Baptist temple. I had it all up here. But somewhere along the line, things got a little out of balance. And you know what? It wasn't everybody. It was me. And I have gone through life creating problems with my attitude and my tongue. And I don't know if I ever offended you, but if I did, I, I sure want, I want to have a good relationship with you. I said, you've never personally offended me. But I told him, I said, honestly, I knew your reputation. I wasn't looking forward to seeing you today. <laughs> and we laughed, and before we went out the door, he hugged me again, and we just had a wonderful, wonderful meeting. And here's the thought I ended that meeting with. If you change your attitude, you can change your whole life. Change your attitude. That's worth writing down, by the way. It'll be worth the lead you expended there to write that. Change your attitude, and you can change your life. All right, let's read the Bible and see, does the Bible say that? Daniel chapter 5, will you stand with me, please? Daniel 5, <clears throat> Daniel chapter 5 and verse 8, and um, we'll read beginning in verse 8. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing written by this hand and wrist upon the wall. Nor could they make known to the king the interpretation thereof. And then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled. His countenance was changed in him. His lords were astonished or astonished. Now the queen, his wife, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house. And the queen spake and said to him, O king, live forever. But let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor thy countenance be changed. There is a man. Boy, I like that phrase. There is a man. There is a man who has got the solution to this problem, king. There is a man in the kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him, whom... The king, Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, now actually Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather, but in those days they always just used the term father for the generations, 
whom the king, Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made this man master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. For as much as an excellent spirit was found in him. Heavenly Father, fill me with thy Holy Spirit. Again, I pray as I speak this message today in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And so the title of the message this morning is The Man with the Great Attitude. The Man with the Great Attitude. Of course, I speak of Daniel. Belshazzar, the king, threw a party on the final night of the Babylonian Empire. He didn't know it would be the final night. The Babylonian Empire was the one great superpower of the world at that time. It would be like the United States in history today. He threw this party at his equivalent of the White House, and it was a wild party. The booze was flowing, and the music was loud, and everybody was drinking and drunk, and they were blaspheming Almighty God because they had taken the vessels of the temple that they had captured 70 years before, and they were drinking their booze out of vessels that, were, that had been dedicated to Almighty God. It was a wild affair. There was immorality, and it was open in those days, no attempt to hide it. And suddenly in the middle of that wild party, somebody looks up on the wall, and there's a man's hand. Probably down to about the wrist. And it's writing strange words upon the wall. And people begin to look and point to their friends. And the noise level goes down. Somebody says to the band, shh, hold it a minute. They cut out the music. And people that have been inebriated a moment before begin to sober because. This is strange. This is the strangest thing they've ever seen in their life. The hand writes. And then the king turns and says to the wise men who have been invited to the party, somebody tell me what that means. What is, what is the interpretation of that writing? Nobody can tell him. The queen comes over to him. Belshazzar, there is a man there is one person in this kingdom. Your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, called on him more than once, and he always had the answer. He is a man of wisdom and understanding and knowledge. He can interpret dreams. He has the Spirit of God within him. He is unlike any other man living in this kingdom. We need to find him, and so they go find him. He comes in. He's past 80 years old now. He was 65 when he was captured and taken to Babylon against his will when the Babylonians invaded Israel at the captivity. And he has lived through the entire captivity period except for five years or so. And now this man stands before the king. And the king says, what does that mean? And Daniel tells him what it means. It means, King, that all this riotous, drunken immorality that you are motivating and precipitating here, it means that all of that's going to end. It means that judgment is coming on you and the kingdom tonight. 
It means that another kingdom will take over, the Medes and the Persians, the second great kingdom in world history. They're going to come tonight, and all these walls and all these armaments that you think are protecting you, they're not going to protect you. The judgment of God is falling. And so he makes this prophecy, and it occurred just like he prophesied here. Look down in verse 30, and in that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain, and Darius, the Mede of the Medes and Persians, took the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And so Daniel was called upon again to come and deliver the message of God. Now, notice with me in verse 12 of chapter 5, for as much as an excellent spirit was in Daniel. And then go over to chapter 6 and verse 3. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him. Twice it describes Daniel with that term. An excellent spirit was found in him. An excellent spirit. But what does an excellent spirit mean? It would be our, our word for attitude. An excellent attitude was found in Daniel. And uh, he's always described in these terms. An excellent attitude. The man with the great attitude. Now, by the way, if there was anyone who ever had an excuse to be bitter, this is him. If anybody ever could say, you know, life has been tough and I, I'm reacting to it, I can't help it, my background and conditions are what have caused my attitude to be bad, it could have been him. You see, he remembered that journey when the soldiers captured him and the other royal family members and they brought them to Babylon. 900 miles and month after month in a journey because in those days they had to walk or ride on horseback. And then he remembers his sadness. He knows that probably his mother and daddy are already dead, but if they're not, he'll never see them again. You didn't make that trip often, 900 miles in those days. He knows that he'll never again see his beloved nation. He'll never see his family. He will never see his friends. All of that is gone. And then he gets there. It's a new country. Here's a boy who was plucked up from the most godly nation on the earth, though it was away from God, it was still the best. Plucked up from the worship of his God, from the temple and all that he had known. And he's taken to Babylon, arguably the most evil city in all the world at that time. He knows that there is a new culture now that's going to face him. Instead of being a small little rural nation, it's big city. It's sophisticated there. He knows that there's a lot of palace gossip and intrigue that he'll be facing. He knows there's immorality all around him. And in spite of that, he is forced to go on into it. They, he now knows that they worship in a different way and a new religion. Is, they try to force it upon him. It's a religion of occultism, the worship of spirits. It's a religion of paganism, 
The occult is all around him. It's an evil, evil uh, culture in which he finds himself. And he even now has a new identity. They take away his name, Daniel, and they call him Belteshazzar. Daniel meant God is my judge. Belteshazzar means that Bel now protects my life. So they took away his name. They took away his culture. They took away his country. They took away his religion. Maybe worst of all, they made a eunuch out of him. They castrated him. And he would never have a wife. He would never have a family. He would never have children. He would have no legacy, no grandchildren. You can't lose anything more than Daniel lost. And yet, he's 80 years old plus. And how do they describe him? He is the man with the great attitude. He's the man who has overcome the obstacles of life, and he is the man with a great attitude, Daniel. The word attitude really is not in the Bible. I don't even know that the word attitude existed when the Bible was written. New words come into our language all the time. But the thing attitude is in the Bible. What do I mean by that? Let me give you a definition. What is, an, what is our attitude? Now, people say he has an attitude. It's not a good use of the language. That's a colloquialism. Honestly, everybody has an attitude, good, bad, or indifferent. But, you know, to, to say he has an attitude, she has an attitude, usually people mean that negatively today, but it's not a proper use of the word. The word attitude means that the pattern of thoughts and feelings that I have that determines my perspective toward life. My attitude determines my perspective toward life. And it comes from my thought patterns, the habits of thinking that I have picked up in my life. Like the man who came to see me in the office that day. You see, he had picked up very, very negative patterns of thinking. And I was thinking I was going to face that again, and, but he had changed those patterns. His attitude had changed because his thinking processes and his feelings had changed in the years since I'd seen him. So in Daniel chapter 5, verse 12, look in your Bible there, it says he had an excellent spirit. In the Bible, sometimes the word spirit doesn't mean the Holy Spirit or the spirit of man. It means an attitude. And in chapter 6 and verse 3, an excellent attitude is what it's saying about Daniel. Then go down to chapter, or go to the book of Philippians, and I'll tell you, don't turn there, just write down the reference. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 and 5, let this mind be in you which was in Jesus Christ. The word mind there doesn't mean that we can have the same brain and thinking of Jesus. It means we have the same attitude as Jesus Christ. Let this attitude be in you, which was in Jesus Christ, Philippians 2 and 5. And then in Proverbs chapter 4, verse number 23, the word is heart. Out of the heart are the issues of life. But the word heart there, it certainly doesn't mean the physical organ. And it doesn't just mean the innermost being of me. It means out of my attitude comes the way that I look at life. It is my perspective of life. It's the way I think about and react to other people and other things. 
Proverbs 23 and verse 7 says that our attitude is the result of the way we think. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And so my thought patterns produce feelings and expressions and actions in my life which determine my attitude. Boy, when you begin to think about it like that, you begin to see the importance of attitude. So here's the man, Daniel, with the great attitude. Number two, if you're taking notes with me, our attitude determines our perspective of life. My attitude determines my perspective of everyone and everything. You see, Daniel could have been depressed. He could have talked about his sad childhood. He could have talked about what he had lost in his life in being taken captive and moved up to Babylon, but he didn't. He could have been bitter, but he wasn't. He could have been disillusioned, but he wasn't. He never wavered. Even when they threatened to throw him into the lion's den, he never wavered because his attitude, his spirit was right. We have a popular saying in our culture. We talk about the pessimist is the one who sees the glass half empty, and the optimist is the one who sees the glass half full, right? But that's an interesting thing if you'll think about it. We just kind of toss it around. Pessimist says the glass is half empty, and the optimist says the glass is half full. Here's the thing. Whether the glass is half full or half empty is a fact. You can take the glass and hold it up and say, it is a fact, it is half full, it is half empty. But then it is our perspective about the glass that says it's half full or half empty. You see, it is a fact of how much water the glass has in it, but the way I view that as being half full or half empty is my perspective about it. Two men looked through prison bars. One saw mud, the other stars. It's your perspective. It's the way you look at life. <laughs> I like that old boy. He was talking to his buddy about his college grades. Now, you talk about a great perspective on life. This guy had it. His friend said, what kind of grades did you make in college? He said, you know, I never was actually in the top half of my class. But you know what? I can say that I was in the group that made the top half possible. <laughs> now, that's the right perspective on life, isn't it? I was in the group that made the top half possible. That's looking at life with the right perspective. You see, it's all perspective, isn't it? He could have stepped on his lip and pouted and said, oh, I didn't do very well. But no, I made the top half possible. That's, that's a guy with a great spirit, a great attitude. It's amazing to me, after 48 years of standing here, two people walk in those doors back there. One of them comes to me after the service, or they go to somebody else, and they say, boy, you know what I noticed? It's so beautiful wonderful building, and everything is so clean, and you know what? It was organized. Y'all didn't miss one second. You didn't waste my time with a lot of uh, banter and all that. You just got with it, and, and you know what? Everything was so organized. Man, that choir and orchestra, wow, that music was so well put together, and you preached the Bible, 
and the gospel, and people got saved. People responded in the church service. A wonderful preacher. And through that other door walks another person, same preacher, same church, same building, same air conditioning, same people, same music, same everything. And everything, was, he didn't like anything. You know what? I had somebody tell me the other day, I don't like your church because it is too organized. It's too organized. I said, what do you want? Basically, what they want is just kind of everybody do your thing, you know? No. But it, it's perspective. It's perspective. Same church, same people, same everything. It's perspective. Our attitude determines our perspective. This man I was talking to, he said, I went to Nebraska. I went to Florida. I went to Georgia. I went other places. You know what? Everywhere I went, it was somebody else's. My perspective was it was the church. And then when I was discipled and I began to look at life from God's point of view, you know what I found out? It wasn't the other churches. In fact, the same people are in every church everywhere you go. Do you know that? I promise you, you got the same groups by personality and character in whatever church you attend. The church is not going to change. It's going to be me that has to look at my attitude. Well, I want you to get this one. We choose our attitudes. We choose our attitudes. Now, that's one of the most powerful principles I think I've ever learned. I, Bill Monroe, choose my attitude. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to turn to this one because maybe you'd like to put a little mark underneath the last part of it. I've got it up on the screen, but I want you to mark it in your Bible. The weapons of our warfare, the Apostle Paul said, are not carnal or fleshly or human, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and casting down imaginations, and that means false reasoning. Now, the Word of God can pull down false reasoning, false thinking, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And he says, I want you to, here's the phrase I want you to underline. I want you to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I want you to bring into captivity your thoughts. Now stop. Hold on a minute. He's saying you can control your attitude. You can bring into captivity. You can take captive thoughts and attitudes that you have, and you can bring them into the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is absolutely profound, is it not? I can choose my attitude. The psalmist said, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice in it. So you can choose your attitude. Most people don't understand that. They think, well, I just am what I am. I was born this way. It's mom and daddy's fault. It was the school teacher's fault. It's somebody else. Uh -uh. You choose your attitude. I do, you do, we do, everyone does. One of my, a book that has affected me quite a bit in my life, my thinking, and also I know it's a favorite book of Dr. Al Harley here because I've heard him refer to it. 
It's Viktor Frankl's book called A Search for Meaning, Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist in Germany when the Nazis took over. And because he was Jewish, they put him in a concentration camp. And he was impacted horribly, but he somehow survived. And when he came out, he wrote about his experiences in Hitler's concentration camps. And here's what he said. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who would walk through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. These men were few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken away from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, the ability to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. Boy, get hold of that, folks. That's pow- that is truth right there. That's powerful truth. Everything can be taken away. And Viktor Frankl talked about it. They stripped him naked. He's in a cell. It's about 68 degrees. And with no clothes, he sits there day after day. And he can't exercise. He can't move. And he's so cold. He's freezing to death. He feels like he's in a refrigerator. They're giving him little tiny bits of food. And he has lost his muscle and his fat on his body. And he's a walking cadaver almost in his appearance. He looks awful. And it dawns on him, they can take away everything I have. They've taken away my wedding ring, he talks about. They took away my clothes. I'm stark naked and humiliated. I have lost my weight. I am starving to death. But they cannot take from me the ability to choose my own attitude. They can't take it from me. It's the last, he said, of the human freedoms. Chuck Swindoll, outstanding preacher, said, this may shock you, but I believe the single most significant decision I can make on a day-to-day basis is my choice of attitude. Attitude is that single string that keeps me going or cripples my progress. When my attitudes are right, there's no barrier too high, no valley too deep, no dream, no dream too extreme, no challenge too great for me. Yet, we must admit that we spend more of our time concentrating and fretting over the things that can't be changed than we do giving attention to the ones that can be changed. Our choice of attitude can be changed. For the Christian, however, we're not talking about just a positive attitude. We're talking about an attitude that comes from a heart that is focused on God and that trusts in Him. End of quote. Now, as a Christian, I can choose my attitude. And what attitude do I want to choose as a Christian? I want to choose a positive Christian attitude. I'm, uh, in the past at least, years gone by, I was a great reader of the self-help books. And of course, the first great self-help book ever written was Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking. And it's, it's a great book. I recommend the book, frankly. However, I don't 
go as far as Peel would go. Because I think the, the weakness of, a power, of the power of positive thinking is that it's humanistic. It can only go as far as the human can go, as the person can go. However, I would say that we don't strive for a positive mental attitude. We strive for a positive Christian attitude. And as a Christian, it is my responsibility to keep my attitude right, which means what? It means that I keep my mind on the cross of Jesus Christ. And if I look at the cross with the right perspective, I know something that nobody can take from me. I know that God loves me. You cannot love me. My wife could leave me. My kids could forsake me. My best friends could abandon me. But I know one thing, as long as there is a Bible, for God so loved the world and I'm in the world, God loves me. And I look at the cross and I see that Jesus Christ died for me and shed his blood as that wonderful song about the blood of Christ was sung by our choir this morning. He loves me so much that he gave his blood. Stop. Think about that. You hear that all the time. Don't let that pass by. Blood. We think we've done something when we give a pint to the Red Cross. He gave all of his blood, meaning he died a horrible death. No Christian ought to ever again after this morning, after me telling you this, if you doubted it until now, no Christian ever ought to doubt that God loves you. If you doubt that, look to the cross. There's the proof of God. There's the proof of God's love. And then I read in my Bible the promises of God. There's hundreds of them, thousands of them in here. And the heart of it is the, is, is the threat of redemption. And I read here that if I'm willing to humble myself and repent of my sins and put my trust in Jesus Christ, God promises me that he will save me. There's nothing that I can do that's so bad that would keep me from being saved. There's nothing so good that I could do that would ever earn salvation. God saves me based upon what he does in my life, not what I do for him. So there's some things in my background I'm ashamed of. But you know what? God understands. God accepts me. His mercy comes to me. His grace is available for me. The blood of Christ has been shed for me as my substitute. And so God loves me. And I am his child as many as believe him. To them gave me the power to become the sons of God. Now, that'll change your attitude if you believe it. If, if you're going around defeated all of your life, my friend, if you're always murmuring and complaining and griping and negative and out of sorts, you need to look to the cross. You don't really understand what this Christian thing's about if you're living a defeated life. Now, I'm going to say something a little negative, though. Nominal Christianity is the standard in Florence, South Carolina. It's not, it's not it, subpar Christianity is the standard in South Carolina and across the United States. I'm not just picking on South Carolina, but I know well here. Vance Habner said we've been 
subnormals so long that if we ever were normal, people would think we were abnormal. He's right. Nominal Christianity, defeated Christianity, is the standard. But you and I don't have to settle for that, do we? We don't have to settle for that. You don't have to be a nominal, defeated Christian in your attitude. So we've got so much to have a wonderful, positive Christian attitude about if we'll focus on it. You know what I love? I love a phrase. I think I learned it from Adrian. I don't know where. I I think it was him. I'm not sure. My past is forgiven. My present is secured. And my future is guaranteed. Man, I like that. That That will even bless a cold Baptist. My past is forgiven. My present is secure. And my future is guaranteed. Now, let me show you what a positive attitude looks like. A positive Christian attitude looks good, and then I'll be through, okay? Go to Galatians chapter 5. How could I tell if a fellow had a positive Christian attitude, a fellow or a lady or whomever? Here's the way you can tell. Galatians chapter 5, and it's described for us here in detail. This is how you can tell A person has a Christian attitude, a positive Christian attitude. By the way, that man that came to see me in my office that day, he epitomized this. It was all over him. (laughs) I mean, that guy had been so negative. He was 180 degrees different. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. You know what the Chinese preacher said? It's just one fruit and nine flavors. I kind of like that, don't you? There's one fruit here and nine flavors. What's, the fruit is love. Do you have God's love really in your life today? Are you reflecting? Am I reflecting? I ask, have to ask myself, the love of God in my life? You know, every now and then I'll, I'll come in to a building and I'll just get overwhelmed by the smell of somebody's perfume. I mean, they didn't just dab a little on their face. They just took a bath in it, you know. They've been going for 30 minutes, and you still smell them. The aroma is there. And we, you know what I'm talking about there, but do you realize that you and I ought to leave an aroma behind us? You know what that aroma ought to be? It ought to be a spirit of Jesus Christ. That when I leave the room or when I enter the room, the aroma of Christ precedes me into that room and then lingers after I'm gone, after I'm around you. That would be my hope, that there would be the aroma of Jesus Christ left behind. And that aroma is love because every, above everything, Jesus Christ loved us. And then he gives us the expressions of love that need to be in my life. This is a positive Christian attitude, love, an attitude of joy, an attitude of peace. We used to sing a song that said, there's a peace in my heart that the world never gave me and the world can't take away. The 
world can't take away the peace that he leaves to us here. And then, long-suffering. That would be patience, wouldn't it? What is a positive Christian attitude? I show love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness. We would probably say today, kindness. The right attitude is kind. Goodness. Translated goodness here, same word as righteousness. So we're righteous people. There's faith, confidence in the Word of God. There is meekness, which we probably would say humility, humble. And temperance, which means self-control. That I'm learning to control those impulses. Maybe we ought to call it impulse control. That's what people call it today when you go to the psychologist, impulse control. Well, the Bible talks about it as being moderation or temperance, the ability to control oneself. Now, you put all those together, that's a positive Christian attitude. Gratefulness to God for the cross, faith in His Word, and it changes me. It changes me. A woman wrote, while I professed to be a Christian and believe I was, uh, while I professed to be a Christian and I believe I was saved, nothing about my life would have given a stranger any indication that I was a Christian. After listening to the program, the Lord seemed to be whispering to me, don't you think it's time you started to walk the walk and not just talk the talk? I was not following Jesus, but now I am. I was moved by the truth, and I began to see my life for what it really was, a big, fat lie, end of quote. But I was moved by the Word of God. I saw that I was not following Jesus, but I am now a change of attitude, a change of perspective because of God's working in our life, a positive Christian attitude. Will you stand to your feet with me, if you will, please?